Welcome to the Dollars and Dumbbells podcast. I'm your host, Justin Green, a certified financial planner and CFO for online coaches, and I'm on a mission to help online coaches keep more money in their pockets. If you're building an online service business and you want to learn how to grow your profits, manage your money, and pay less taxes all while pursuing your dream life, then you're in the right place. Justin Green is the founder of AssistFP, a financial planning firm, and Be a Wealthy Coach LLC, an outsourced CFO service. All opinions expressed in this episode are mine solely and not reflective of AssistFP or Be a Wealthy Coach. As always, this podcast is not advice and it is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Always consult with your own financial tax and or legal advisor before making any decisions. Welcome back, coaches. Today, I'm chatting with Patrick Cummings and John Gilson. Patrick and John co-founded Again Faster Fitness Equipment back in 2006 before successfully selling the company and are now teaming up again on their newest project, Optimal Agency, where they're focused on the intersection of wealth, health, and time. Patrick is also known as the co-host of two successful health and fitness podcasts, including Chasing Excellence with Ben Bergeron and The Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. John is a coach, writer, and entrepreneur who now owns Gilson Consulting. This is a really fun conversation as we dive into the six rules of wealth at Optimal Agency. Patrick, John, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Justin. Hey, let everyone know, where are you guys calling in from? You go I first, am John. in, yeah, I will. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I'm up in northern New Hampshire, so I'm in the shadow of Mount Madison. And I'm in southern Maine. Cool. And I'm in Massachusetts, so we've covered the whole New England region here okay. on okay. the podcast. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on. So you guys are working on a new project, Optimal Agency. Would love for you to define what that is real quick for the audience so that they, they know a little bit more about like to be honest with you, I, 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 I don't know what agency means. So I've heard the term kind of thrown around a bit, but why don't you tell us a little bit more, like what does that even mean? And then what's the optimal part? Yeah, agency is really personal autonomy. And it's your ability to command your days to decide what you do and who you do it with and how long you do it and have all of that be entirely elective. And I think the source of it is really the understanding that autonomy and agency are synonyms. And it's a very closely held human value. In other words, people don't particularly like being told what to do by and large, and they like having the freedom to pursue goals kind of under their own steam. And I think that the impetus for this was the pandemic and seeing how much people liked to be at home, to have control over their days and how much more joy and freedom that brought to people. And so, you know, we started to think about what's the framework under which you would have the most control over your days, the most autonomy, and what, what are the things that you would need? And so optimal agency is a way for people to claim that sovereignty over their lives in three domains, health, wealth, and time. Cool. So let's talk about the intersection of those three. How did you narrow in on those? Like you didn't just go to the drawing board and do it. I mean, I'm probably talking years of experience and trial and error. And so I'm interested, like how did those three finally make the chopping block, right? You know, I'm sure there was other things you were thinking about that didn't make the cut. 
Yeah, I don't know if there was anything that didn't make the cut. I would say that I think you're right, Justin. History sort of led us to a large degree of it. John and I, as as you mentioned in the intro, John and I started, again, Faster Equipment inside the CrossFit space back before anybody knew what CrossFit was. And so we spent a lot of time working in that world, thinking about that world. John was a seminar, was on seminar staff, seminar staff at CrossFit. So we spent a lot of time thinking about and working on the health bucket, right? And you mentioned also, like, I've got a couple podcasts in this space, like we're deeply ingrained in that space. And I would say that, and I won't speak for you, John, but over the last 15, 20 years, a, a kind of a, a side interest of yours has been wealth, personal finances. And so that was always something that was there on the back burner. And then in mid-pandemic, John and I got together and we, we started this project that initially was called greater than money. And it was our kind of exploration of the personal, the, the, the personal finance side of things. And for various reasons, th- that project kind of got shelved for a little while. And then it was picked back up. I would say almost maybe a year ago, maybe a little less than a year ago, John reached out and said, Hey, I'd love to like that thing that we put some time into. I'd love to pick that back up. And as we started the conversation about, well, what, what does that look like? What could it be? What else might we want it to become? We started, to, we started to narrow in on this idea of agency and autonomy and freedom. And so we started putting the building blocks together for that. And we said, well, well, health is clearly part of it. And wealth is clearly part of it. And then as we were going through the process of, of, of kind of iterating and exploring those ideas, we kept coming back to this idea, this notion that time has to also be there. Because without it, you can't, you just physically, you just don't have the time, you just don't have the ability to pursue the health and the wealth elements of things. And so once we really keyed in on the, that, it was really kind of three things that were equally and interdependently important in pursuit of agency. That, at least to me, was when the light bulb went off and I, and I said to myself, like, well, this is something interesting. This could be, this could be something that, that is a real unlock for people. And I think you start to see when you think health, wealth, and time, how skewing too far towards the direction of any of those things compromises the others. In other words, if I spend all of my time trying to get wealthy, almost invariably, I'm going to sacrifice elements of health like friendship and connection, things like building my muscle mass and my cardiovascular capacity, because I'm simply not going to quote unquote, have the time for those things. And you can view that skew the other way. You know, who has all the time in the world? 18 year olds. Who has all the money in the world, not 18 year olds, you know, and so you really have to think about these three things as a balance. And as we did, the rules of each, you know, start to elucidate themselves. How do you create all three? How do you balance all three? And then I think the other thing that very much like you could potentially think of time as a form of wealth or mm-hmm. health as a form of wealth or money as time as exact equivalents, there are these tremendous overlaps between the categories. And so we started to get really tactical and say, well, okay, rather than this just be a philosophy, how do you build your health? Literally, what are the steps? What do you need to concentrate on? You know, how do you build your wealth? How do you build your time freedom from the obligations of other people and oppressive bosses? And so optimal agency was born. Yeah. What's really interesting to me about what you just said there, John, was that you can kind of interchange some of them. Like, you know, you might consider money and time kind of the same thing. And like that actually jumped out to me because for me personally, like I define wealth almost as the intersection of all, all three of those, right? Money, time, and health. And that is like my definition of wealth. Like how much money do I have for myself now and in the future? 
how am I able to spend my time freely? I'm a, I'm a, a recent dad to a, a one month old. So like for me, time is huge, right? Because there, it feels like there's less than 24 hours in a day. Although, you know, we all do have the same 24 hours. It feels like it's less. So how do I maximize that time in the business, but also as, as a father and then health, obviously, I, I think most people listening to this, that's kind of a fundamental core principle that that they have because they're online health and fitness coaches. So we, we all kind of have that in common. So I always say to, you know, prospects, new clients, my audience, et cetera, is like, what does wealth mean to you? Because it does mean something different to everyone. Everyone hears wealth and they just think dollars, but I actually believe it's much more than that. So I actually interpret it more of like the intersection kind of that you guys have come up with. So I thought it was really interesting when I saw what you guys were doing because that related to me. I think for the sake of this episode, because we could probably talk for like four to five hours and turn this into like a Joe Rogan podcast, but I don't know if that's good for anyone here. I think we should focus on the wealth. So you guys posted six rules of wealth and you're doing, you're kind of educating this through your website and your podcast and your newsletter, right? And so I'll, we'll drop the links to those and, and you can drop the, how to get, to, how to find those at the end as well. But you've got the six rules of wealth listed on your website. I think honestly, that's the best place to start for this podcast and for this audience. So would you guys want to summarize what those are and then let's dive in a little bit? Do you want me to read them off and then we can dive into them? How do you want to do it? Yeah, I think Pardon? it's worthwhile to maybe just read them off because they cool. really do build off of each other and we can dive from there. Cool. All right. So rule number one, separate your time from your income. Rule number two, make as much as you're able. Rule number three, spend much less than you make. Rule number four, pay as few taxes as you can. Rule number five, purchase passive income and appreciating assets with your savings. And rule number six, let compounding do its work. So those are the six. Let's start with number one, separate your time from your income. Why is that so important? And what does that actually mean? And how sure. do you actually do it? Yeah. So early on at Again Faster, Pat and I traveled together everywhere because he would be filming events and seminars and level one seminars and kind of putting together content for CrossFit.com. And when we started the e-commerce company, we'd get orders at all all times of the day, you know? And so this was back when you couldn't access the internet on an airplane. And so <laughs> we would land in Austin or we'd land in Sacramento or we'd land in Chicago and I'd open up my Blackberry. Yeah, no, I'm serious. It was Blackberry. <laughs> and, and see how much money we made, you know, what was the revenue that came in while we were not doing anything when we had airplane money, you know? And so the idea was we hadn't spent any active time generating that because a system was generating that, or, you know, it was being generated by a business. In the case of optimal agency, when we say separate your time from your income, what we really mean is that an ever-growing percentage of your needed income is coming from truly passive investments. That is one in which you have no active role. None of your time is truly required. Now, again, faster an equipment company wasn't that. And I believe that anybody who tells you that a business that you own and that you operate can be, you know, a passive income generator doesn't understand how complicated business is. And typically, I believe that the only way that you can truly separate your time from your income is to have truly passive investments, that is dividends, capital gains, and the like from publicly traded or, or at least liquid securities. 
And so the importance there, that becomes our North Star, right? We're saying, okay, if I had all of the money coming in, I need to pay my bills without me doing anything, my time would be mine. And therefore, I'd be free to impact the world. I'd have agency and I could do what I wanted. Well, Separating your time from your income, it follows rules two and rules three, that there needs to be a gap between how much you make and how much you spend. In other words, to invest at all, you need to have savings. And so we talk about making as much as you're able, and we're very careful to make a distinction there. That's, this isn't simply work 100 hours a week and get paid like it. Like there's no exhortation to become an investment banker here. The idea is to make as much as you're able for the time that you have allocated and committed to work. And so we talk a lot about operating at the top of your credentials. We talk about getting putting yourself in the job market and making sure that you're actually getting paid as much as you possibly can for your skills. We're talking about trying to find jobs where your inputs and outputs are divorced, things like that. And then we get into the land of kind of frugality, frankly, and minimalism and financial independence when we talk about spending much less than you make. Yeah, let's pause real quick because we're already on to rule three. <laughs> I got some thoughts on rule one. So let's back up a little bit. Patrick, you got anything to add before I, before I hop no, in? No, go ahead. Okay, cool. So, you know, I was just thinking of, you know, separating time from your income. I'm a financial planner, right? So I'm not going to argue passive investments and traditional stocks and dividends, et cetera, right? I know the importance of that. And so I totally agree with you there. I do think maybe with the digital world and with my audience being a lot of like coaches, content creators, et cetera, there are more opportunities now in your business to create passive income sources, right? Maybe not the same as traditional investing, but, you know, digital courses and, and things of the such where it's not a physical product, like when you guys were selling gym equipment, but you could theoretically put a lot of time into creating the business or the product, I'm sorry. And then, you know, you could be on an airplane, hop off and you have sold, you know, 15 online courses and it requires no time from you, right? So I just kind of want to dive a little bit deeper into that. It's like, other than traditional stocks, investing, et cetera, like what are other ways that you guys see on separating your time from your income? Because I do think now where we're headed in this digital world, there are more opportunities there. I think there's a difference between passive and scalable. In other words, you can create a scalable business that gives you income where your output, that is the dollars you make, is divorced from your input. You have to make the product, the software, the course, et cetera, once, and then the marginal cost replication is zero. And so you continue to see income from that. I don't believe that is passive. In other words, you spent your time developing the career capital, sitting down to build that course, to build that software. And frankly, you probably have some customer service demand on the backside. Even if someone else is doing <laughs> that, you do need to supervise them. You need to file the taxes at the end of the year. You got to send out the 1099s. And so uh, it's a perfectly viable way to build wealth, and I tend to categorize it under making as much as you're able rather than a true separation of, of time and income. It's almost a quasi-separation, if you will. It's a great step on yeah. the way, but it's not the same thing. I'm almost thinking of it now as a spectrum, right? And on one end, I think of everything on the spectrum. On one end, you've got like one-to-one -one coaching, right? Like that, that is clearly time for money, right? Like I need to hop on the call. It might be higher ticket, but it's going to take out my time. So on one end, you've got the one-to-one -one coaching. Let's say on the other end, you've got completely passive investments. And then somewhere in the middle is like that scaling, right? So you're less of your actual time, but it's not like to your point, it's not really passive. You had to put a significant amount of time in there and somebody may be putting time into that wealth building 
product. It just might not be you or it might be very little of your time. So I almost, when I hear that, I kind of think of that as a spectrum, like you're moving closer to passive, but you're not there yet. Like there's other, there are other ways to then get even more passive, I guess, to put it that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's spot on. I think cool. that's spot on. And, you know, you want to make sure, of course, it's it's not semantics. Ultimately, if you can wake up at, at 6 a.m. and do whatever you want until 9 p.m., for I think for our sake, you've, you've gotten to where you need to get to with, with rule number one. Absolutely. Cool. All right. So rule number two, make as much as you're able. That seems pretty obvious to a money guy. <laughs> like for me, that seems like, yeah, you should do that. So let's let's talk about that a little bit more because I, I, I liked what you highlighted there was as much as you're able to, according to like the time standards that you set, like, let's be clear on that. Not that society sets, right? Because society says 40 hours a week, you're sitting at your desk, nine to five, et cetera. But no, 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 make as much as you're able to based on like the standards that you set for yourself. Is that correct? Yeah, that's spot on. That's spot on. And I think that, you know, Patrick, we, you and I talk a lot about external versus internal benchmarks. And maybe you can run with that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, external, you know, internal versus external. That's a, it's a concept that I got and who knows where he got it, but Morgan Housel, author of Psychology. Great financial author. That's something that I came across. And and so John and I've actually, I don't remember if it's come out yet, but we've recorded an episode on internal versus external benchmarks. And it's, it's really simple. It's who's determining what success looks like. Is it, is it the people on Instagram or is it, is it yourself? And how are you, how are you creating those rules? How are you creating that definition of success? And the more often we can stay with our internal benchmarks of what success might be or enough is the better off, the happier, the more fulfilled, the more satisfied we're going to be. And the more often we chase external benchmarks, the more likely we are to never be satisfied because those benchmarks will always continue to move, right? It's the proverbial, you know, the, the, the goalpost, the goal line always moves as soon as you get closer to it. And so always recognizing where we are chasing external benchmarks and where perhaps we can start to turn them inward in, towards internal benchmarks are, is always an exercise worth doing. Yeah, there's studies that show actually like the, the satisfaction of hitting a goal, like as humans, we expect this like immense satisfaction and it often doesn't actually happen that way you hit the goal and you move it farther out because there's not as much of a i don't know maybe like a dopamine hit or just overall excitement or feeling of achievement as you expect there to be when you hit that goal and so you do you keep moving those goal posts out a lot of people a lot of financial advisors are starting to focus on like anti-goals so like what do you not want to do let's focus on that knowing that the studies and the research says that goals you don't like you just don't feel the same achievement as you think you're going to when you hit it right and a lot of people also you know talking about external and internal they don't know what their goals are. They haven't taken the time to dig deep because it's one of those concepts that I, I think fits perfectly for the like, it's simple, but not easy, right? Because it's it's simple to figure out what your goals are, but it's, it's actually a lot of hard work. You got to do a lot of introspective searching and you have to ignore all of the noise on social media. And there's so much noise out there telling you what you should be doing, what you should 
be trying to achieve, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's, uh, I think it's really important to understand the difference between the internal and external, but also know that it's like, it sounds really simple, but it's a hard journey. And, and some people go on that journey for, for their whole life trying to figure it out. Yeah. And I would just add it. Social media definitely is a, is lights, a, you know, is gasoline on this fire. But the truth is that we get, we get these external benchmarks from when we're five years old and up. We get them from parents, we get them from friends, we get them from friends' parents, we get them everywhere. And so we, are, we have to be really diligent as we get older and as we, as we sort of aim for this autonomy and this agency to make sure we're not borrowing other people's definitions unnecessarily. I think there's lots of value in like, you know, if you've got a mentor, you've got a friend, like it's not to say like, don't look for advice, don't look for people who you want to model yourself after, but it, it, it is, it is incumbent on you to be able to determine is that thing that he, he determines as success. Is that what I want to determine at success as right. And to get really clear with yourself when you're borrowing other people's definitions, when in fact you would be better to write your own. Absolutely. There's a lot of research done on money scripts by Brad Klontz and his father, Ted Klontz. And that's essentially what you just said, how like growing up with money impacts you. I'll link to an episode I did in the past with a financial therapist on money scripts, and I can do an episode in the future. So we'll go, we won't go down that road, but exactly what you just said, there's a lot of research on that and they're called money scripts in terms of wealth building. And then obviously it can impact other areas as well. Yeah, I think I've heard Ramit Sethi use that phrase as well. Money scripts or scripts just in general. Probably. I like Ramit. He just has a Netflix show out right now that kind of trash advisor. So he's pretty hot in our community right now. A lot oh, of we people don't like are, him anymore then. Yeah. Yeah, sure. a lot of people are going nuts. I think he's got a lot of good <laughs> advice, but he's a modern day Dave Ramsey. So, you know, it's hard when you have that big of an audience to get really specific. You have to use generalities. And I think a lot of his generalities are pretty good. And I think there's a lot of bad advisors out there. So they're naturally getting upset when he calls them out. So rule number three, spend much less than you make. I really like this one. And there's one word that really jumps out at me. Do you know which one it is? Much. Exactly. (laughs) So a lot of people say spend less than you make. I say it all the time. But much less is actually probably better. Yeah. Well, the gap between how much you make and how much you spend, the wider that gap is, the more optionality you have each and every day to make mm-hmm. different choices. Right. I, I can, I'd like to share a story. I was actually working for a pandemic darling startup that got very rapidly into the nine figure revenue range. And I was working as the head of uh, commercial business development for them. And after about three years, I got a, I got laid off. And we got on an all hands conference call that morning and the CEO got on and he said, we've run into some lackluster sales and we're letting about 30% of you go. If an invite appears on your calendar in the next five minutes, I'm sorry, you're one of the affected people. Please go to that meeting. We'll walk through your severance packages. And I just went, God, let it be me. Let it be me. Let it be me. Because I... (laughs) Because I had been so stressed out at this job for, you know, about three years and I'd been spending much less than I made the entire time. So I had all kinds of wealth saved, you know, and so was able to say, hey, no matter what happens here, it doesn't really matter. My bank account can absorb this. And you contrast that to my colleagues for whom the sky was falling. 
They were losing their job. They were losing their income. They were living closer to their paycheck. And they just didn't have that level of freedom to go, please let it be me. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was, please don't let it be me. And so, you know, I understand firsthand that the higher your savings rate, that is the percentage of your take-home rate that doesn't get spent, the greater your wealth, the greater your wealth, the more options you have every day. And the more options you have every day, the more autonomy you have, and, and generally the happier you're going to be. And, you know, there's this trap, we call it, Patrick and I call it the anti-consumerist mindset. That is, how do you get yourself out of the idea that spending money is what's going to make you happy, when in fact not spending money and buying freedom is the thing that'll probably make you happy. Absolutely. Savings rate is one of the key metrics that I focus on with clients. One of the, and I think I read this on the website. So you guys go deeper into these six rules for anyone listening on the website, optimalagency.co, C-O. Uh, they dive into these rules. And so number three, and I think you might've said this on there, but if not, one of the things that's really important about spending much less than you make that most people don't realize is that when you do this, you're one able to save more, which is I think the more obvious one, but you're able to live off of less moving forward. So it's much easier to replace your income because you've intentionally decreased it, if that makes sense. There's a, a, a business finance book, Profit First by Mike Michalowicz, and he uses the term smaller plates. And that's kind of what you're mm -hmm. doing, right? Americans, when we eat on big plates, we tend to eat more. If you use smaller plates, like a lot of countries do, you eat less because you put less food on the plate. Intentionally making the pot of money you have available to spend a smaller plate so you have less money because you're saving more means that in the future, you need less money built up to replace that smaller plate than if you had a bigger plate. So that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize in the power of having a higher savings rate. And so I just kind of want to highlight that. And I'm, I can't remember if you put that on the website or not, but I thought you guys mentioned that. I'd be surprised if we didn't. I mean, you know, it's quite the, quite the benefit to, you know, be making a hundred thousand dollars a year and living off 50 and knowing that if that hundred stops, you could literally live off half of that or that you have that option to take a part-time job and do what you're doing at the same hourly rate for half the time and to reclaim half your life back because your savings rate's so high. I can't think of a better metric ultimately to tell you not, are you wealthy today? That is how much money you have. I can't tell if you're wealthy based on your savings rate, but I can tell you if you will be. I call it one of the vital signs. So I use a tool called Elements. It's a financial monitoring tool. And they have this scorecard built and they, they created the terms, which is why I'm referencing them. And they call it the financial vital signs. So when you go to your doctor, you get your blood pressure, your, you know, they check your pulse, et cetera. And that's like, no matter what, if you're healthy or not, they just want to see, okay, here's your vital sign. That's one of them savings rate, right? So if I can look at and just see, I don't have to do these like, like high end projections or anything. If I can just see like, Hey, what's your savings rate? And then we talk again in three months and I look at your savings rate again, I can see how your future is going to play out. Like to your point. So it, it is like one of your financial vital signs and, and it's really important. Other thing I want to highlight, I think this is where spectrum also comes into play. And I know you mentioned this on the website. You're not promoting extreme frugality here. Like there's a spectrum of how much you spend and, and the, like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with or 
fond of the fire community, which there's like 14 different versions of fire now, but essentially it's financially independent, retire early. And a lot of times the stigma with fire is extreme frugality and they live off of like as little money as possible. And then they retire at like 35 and live off of that for the rest of their life. Right. Personally, I'm not a fan of that. Like that doesn't really intrigue me that much extreme frugality. And so I just kind of want to point out, like we're talking about a spectrum here. You don't have to be like extremely frugal where you don't spend any money but you probably shouldn't be at the other end where you spend everything. And it's somewhere in the middle where there's this like happy medium between enjoying your life now and maybe spending a little bit on maybe not material items, but maybe things that buy back time. And so that I kind of wanted to highlight that as well before we moved on to number four. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting isn't, do you spend a lot or just spend a little? It's what do you spend your money mm -hmm. on to your point? And one of the things that I like is the filter for extreme frugality versus frugality versus, you know, profligate is the idea of, are you spending money to meet an emotional need? Are you spending money to meet a, a life need, something that's really going to further your agency? You know, are you spending to make yourself healthier? Are you spending to give yourself more time back to your point? Are you spending in a way that's going to long-term have an ROI and give you more wealth? If you are rock on, you know, if you're spending because you get that you get that serotonin hit from hitting the checkout button like hey think again you know and if you're spending to replace something you've already got that doesn't need replacing think again you know and so i i think there is a spectrum and we we definitely love to dive into that kind of stuff and it's, it's not it's not as quite as simple and black and white as this but i also think there's an element back to the internal versus external benchmarking i think if you find yourself spending things on trying to satisfy external benchmarks is a pretty good trigger to ask yourself the questions that sort of John just, just brought up. Right. And again, it's not always quite as easy or obvious to, to notice that, but to me, like, you know, one of the things we've been talking about to a degree, we haven't used the term is just this is lifestyle creep, right. Which happens uh, a lot when you start making more money, suddenly you start spending more money and it's sort of, they go in lockstep with each other. And so you never actually, uh, extend out that savings rate as much as, you know, you know, Justin, you would like to see somebody do, right? And so a lot of that lifestyle creep tends to fall into the external benchmarking. And so again, recognizing, asking yourself, noticing, being aware, uh, and asking yourself, wh why do I, why do I buy the things that I buy? Why do I spend my money in the way that I spend it? That question alone can be powerful if you actually sit with it long enough and really examine it. Absolutely. I'm going to define lifestyle creep for anyone listening who doesn't understand what that means. But essentially, as your income rises, your spending elevates to that income. So you're never increasing your savings because you are just spending more as your income goes up. And a lot of times your spending will surpass your income level. And so that's the really big risk that you're running. And so that's what lifestyle creep is. And it's a very common thing that happens over time. All right, rule number four, and I think everyone's ears are going to perk up for this one. Pay as few taxes as you can. So I have a lot of entrepreneurs listening in. So taxes is a big, big topic. Uh, so let's dive into that one. Yeah, dollars are fungible. I don't care if you made it uh, and didn't spend against it in terms of expenses or if you made it and didn't spend against it in taxes, it's a dollar you get to keep. And so right along with spend much less than you make, 
Don't give away your money by spending it. Don't give away your money by paying taxes on it either. And, you know, obviously, I, I believe that we all have a moral obligation to pay taxes, and we do not have a moral obligation to pay any more taxes than are demanded by our current legislative system. And so the question is, truly, as an individual or business owner, are you educated on our taxation system? Do you understand the ways available to you to minimize your tax burden? Whether that's through a Section 179 deduction on a piece of equipment that you've purchased, whether that's through contributing to traditional retirement vehicles as an individual, whether that's structuring your business as an S-Corp election on an LLC so that you can take money at a dividend rate instead of at an income rate. You know, it pays quite a bit to understand this stuff. And obviously, as a financial planner can help you with this, a CPA can help you with this. But one of the other places we go is that I think that people aren't there. These are fairly commonly well-known things, right? I can structure myself as a business. I can take advantage of, of retirement vehicles, etc. One of the things people understand quite a bit less is that your tax, your tax burden depends a lot on where you are in space. Where, where do you live? You know? And so there's a geo arbitrage element to this where you can decide to move somewhere else and you might instantly give yourself a five or ten percent raise by doing so and the more entrepreneurial in nature your profession the more likely it is that you can successfully do stuff like this so you know we talk about everything from the common taxation ideas than anything else but what we really end up on and, and justin I, I hope you like this is hire a pro because would i love for you to be familiar with the tax code Sure. I'm not even sure the IRS is familiar with the tax code. That's how much of a behemoth the thing is. I'm not kidding. And, you know, so get yourself a professional, get somebody that you can describe your situation to and help them help you pay as few taxes as you can. There's always positive ROI there. I mean, I think I pay my CPA six, seven hundred bucks a year for somebody that undoubtedly saves me thousands. Yeah, I would argue the IRS knows exactly what they're doing, actually. The IRS, the, the, <laughs> the tax code is a business owner's friend. The tax code incentivizes owning a business, real estate, and stocks investments. There are a lot of incentives. And the reason why is because the people who write the tax code are wealthy legislators. And they own businesses, real estate, and stock investments, right? So these things are always going to be incentivized, one, because it helps them and their classes, et cetera, but also because you're contributing back to the economy. So the, the, I, I think a lot of the tax code is very intentional. Now it gets really behemoth when they're trying to fix loopholes. And so they have to create a tax law to fix a tax law that broke another tax law. But overall, if you're a business owner, it is your friend and you have a lot more opportunity to control how much tax you're paying, I think, as a business owner than like a traditional nine to five employee. There's there's some things you can do. Unfortunately, you are going to be more limited than a business owner, real estate investor, et cetera, could be. I'm not going to argue with hire a pro. Personally, I think that might be a good move. But one of the things that you actually highlighted on the website that I really liked was not just hire a pro, because I think what happens is people say, now's a great time. We're recording on April 20th. We just wrapped up tax season for 2022. People will start thinking about this in February, March. I need to go see my CPA. They need to do my taxes, et cetera. That is like the worst time to be reaching out to your tax professional. 
Like that means everything's already happened. You're not planning anything. You just need them to write in on the form and do your file and do your return. You need a professional that's helping you proactively plan for tax strategies throughout the year. That's where you will save the most on taxes. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to working with a tax professional is just that, hey, I'm going to reach out in you know, March or April to have them file my tax return. You were behind the eight ball as a business owner at that point. Unless you understand these things on your own, which you might, you need to be working with a professional much earlier within that year to start proactively putting those strategies into place. And, and you highlighted that. And I, so I kind of wanted to highlight that because I think that is really, really important. Actually, my last podcast episode was kind of on that concept as well. Moving on to rule number five, purchase passive income and appreciating assets with your savings. Yeah, you know, as you look at this, what we're really saying is that you, you know, it's use the parlance, you need an asset allocation strategy, and you are looking at really thing, you're looking at securities, you're looking at fixed income, you're looking at cash. And once you've decided what percentage of your savings long term should be going into each of those things, and really kind of what we term a now bucket and a later bucket, i.e. what am I saving for retirement versus what am I saving for my freedom pre-age 59 and a half, pre-age 62, that you once you've got that strategy in place, and frankly, even if you don't have that strategy completely dialed, that you're using your savings to buy assets, they're going to spit off money. So the underlying idea is there are people who make money by selling their time, and there are people who make money with money. And I'll tell you who's richer. Uh, by far, you know, you want to know who the 1% of this country is. It's people who make money with money. They are the investor class. They simply move capital and you're allowed to participate there. <laughs> you're allowed to participate with a few clicks of the mouse. And so if you can save by making as much as you're able and spending much less than you make and paying as few taxes as you can, the next step is to become a member of that investor class to make money with money. And so when you do, you'll find that initially your savings and the income your savings generate, that is the money made from your money is relatively small. But after you automate that, after you make that a consistent thing that you do monthly or quarterly or, or annually, after the course of five years, 10 years, 15 years, your passive income will start to become an appreciable chunk of your income period. And you get a whole lot more optionality in how you can spend your life. And so I think a lot of people stop at, okay, I've saved a lot of money. I talk to people who are like, I have $130,000 in my checking account. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and when you do that, when you're scared of securities, when you're scared of stocks and bonds, when you're scared of, you know, private placements, you're, you're not putting your money to work making money for you. In fact, even if you're getting what is now three and a half percent, four percent in your savings account, the people that you're giving that money to are using it in a much more efficient manner to get themselves seven, eight, nine, 10, 15% on that money. You're essentially funding the, the class of people who are making money with money. And so, you know, we want to enable through optimal agency people to not be scared of that idea and to delve into it at whatever level they're comfortable. 
Yeah, and I think one thing to point out here is, well, one, a lot of people who sit in cash don't even move it over to like an online bank. So they're not even getting three to four percent. They're just getting like 0.03%. Your big banks like Bank of America, Chase, et cetera, they pay like 0.02, If you move it over to an online bank right now, it depends on where the rates are at the time, but right now you're probably gonna get closer to like three and a half, four percent, which is like obviously way better than 0.03%, but still lagging, you know, traditional investments. And, you know, I think the one thing to point out is there's no guarantees when investing into the stock market. However, the studies show based on past performance, the longer your time horizon, the longer you're invested into the market, then the odds of you losing money are significantly decreased. Like on a 20 year time horizon, there's research that shows going back. I'm not sure to which year, but it's like probably like a hundred years, I think. Don't quote me on that. If you go back in these 20 year increments, 99% of the time, you would gain money by being invested in the S&P 500 for 20 years, right? And so it's, it's, I think it's important also to understand your time horizon and having like a short-term focus and a long-term focus, which I think leads us to rule number six, which is let compounding do its work. Yeah. And the mathematical phenomenon of compounding is tremendous. The idea is that if I get paid X percentage in interest or dividends on my investment and I let it ride, so to speak, I leave that I leave that dividend payment. I let it reinvest in more of that security. It's going to spit off more passive income. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I put one hundred dollars with an annual yield of four percent at the end of the year, I'll have one hundred and four dollars. If that yields four percent a year later, I'll have about one hundred and eight dollars and change and so on and so forth. That in and of itself is a powerful thing, not at the beginning, but at the end. That is when you get to long periods of time, like Justin, you're talking about here, multi-decade periods, that compounding truly becomes a phenomenon. And at the same time, one of the things that we're talking to, we're, we're speaking to working people, we're talking to active entrepreneurs, people who are making more money. And so if you're saving, you can actually really put another level in that compounding, which is by regularly investing, not only will you be reinvesting your interest, your dividends, et cetera, you'll also be adding to your principal, which will further accelerate your compounding. And it, you know, it allows you to, especially if you do it in an automated way, and we actually talk about the behaviors of the financially enlightened too. And number one there is automate everything. Automate you know, everything. It, That's a, I, I believe in that as well. hundred percent all in on that as much as possible, automate everything. And so if you're automatically investing every month, regardless of what the market is doing at your preferred asset allocations, not only is compounding doing its work, you're supercharging it with additional contributions. And so, you know, I think understanding the phenomenon of compounding doesn't, doesn't work in the human brain. We can't do it. Like we really don't understand how it works until it begins working for us. And I think it becomes really interesting, not only when your passive income starts to exceed your active income, but it really becomes interesting when the fluctuations in your portfolio exceed your annual income in a day or two or three. You really start to understand the power of making money with money. And But that's hard because it takes a long time to see that, right? And so it's hard for mm -hmm. people. I think... Have you ever read The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy? No, but I will now. Yeah, really. It's a really honestly easy to read book. Like it, it's very simple. You're not going to read it and be like, oh, this was 
amazingly enlightening. No, it's a lot of really simple concepts to highlight compounding, but he uses an example and it's like the, I think it's, would you take a penny a day and double it for 30 days or would you take a million dollars? Which one would you take? I think that's it. I could be messing up the wording, but essentially it's showing that if you doubled the penny every single day, it's two cents day two, it's four cents day three, right? It's so small. And you get to like day 29, it's like 1.5 million. And then you double it and it's like 3 million. And don't quote me on the numbers, right? But the, the example I think is one of the best ways to show people the idea of compounding. Because I think compounding is huge in every aspect of life. Health, fitness, you know, 20 years of working out compounds, right? And so I think that book has a lot of really great examples on how compounding it's important in life in general, not just finances. So I would highly recommend that to anyone listening to check that out. You know, and I think actually one of the, the other thing I want to mention is one of the biggest, I think, mistakes that online business owners make, a lot of the ones that I see entrepreneurs, is that they don't diversify into traditional investments, right? And so that's actually part of my mission is helping them become better in their businesses and managing the money within their business. But then also like using that money to then diversify into more passive income strategies moving forward, because they're always so focused on pouring all the money back into their business, which, you know, really kind of highlights all six of your rules, but then they're still trading time for income and they're pouring all that money back and they're never really focused on saving any of it. And they get 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And they're like, I kind of want to do something else. You know, it's kind of going back to your story, John, it's like, you were like sitting there, you know, hoping you got laid off because you knew you could do something else. But they get to this point of inflection where they're like, I kind of want to do something else. But I created a monster and I can't leave. Like, I've got no other option, right? And I think it's hard for young entrepreneurs to even fathom that they're going to maybe want to do something else down the road. Things are going to change. They're going to have families, you know, things are going to come up where either they're going to want to scale back a little bit, they're going to want to pursue new opportunities, you know, it's a long life. And so trying to educate them on how to diversify some of the income that they're bringing into their business is actually a really big goal of mine. Yeah, I, have, I, have a, I have a theory that I'd love to get your both of your feedback on. It's something I've been thinking about a lot as John and I build this project, which is yeah. I, I think, and I would argue, if we got really down to brass tacks, people like you, John, like you, Justin, to, to a lot of the listeners, a lot of the coaches out there, what they're actually attracted to is not necessarily the work itself. That it's, it's a wonderful bonus if you can figure out how to do work that you actually enjoy doing. But I, I would imagine all the, all the entrepreneurs and the independently minded people that I know, the thing that we're all chasing is actually the ability to wake up and do what we want to do on a given day. It's actually mm -hmm. the agency. It's actually the autonomy. And all of us are seeking out ways to match work that we enjoy doing, that we're good at doing, and that allow us the agency and autonomy and freedom that really at the, at the heart of it is what we want and what we're aiming for. And I, I bring all that up because I think one of the things you just said, Justin, made me think about it, which is compounding. It's hard. It, like it's, it's all about patience, right? And it's hard when somebody gets to 10, 15, 20 years, like I've just reinvested, I've reinvested, I've reinvested, and now maybe I want to do something else. That's because they believed that the work itself was the thing that they were chasing. And so it made sense to them to always reinvest today in this thing today, because this thing today is the most important thing. But I would argue that the, the mindset shift 
or the paradigm shift is actually to recognize that we're all chasing a greater degree of agency and a greater degree of autonomy. And if we start making our decisions based on, is this going to get me over the long term more or less agency, more or less autonomy, more or less freedom, and we start using that as the prism through which we make kind of these bigger life decisions, we actually will get ourselves to a better place over the long run. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest issues there, I think you're right, but I think what happens is they don't realize that. that I. So you, everyone wants to wake up and, and do whatever they want, right? They want to be able to wake up with no alarm clock and you know be as creative or as non-creative as they want and do whatever they wish. But I think what people don't realize is that what that day looks like, that perfect ideal day looks like to you today might not be what it looks like to you in 15 years, right? So if you over-optimize, I think, you could. so let's use a, a young entrepreneur who loves the work, right? Like they really do love the work right now. They And they can't fathom the idea of being burnt out in five years. And so right now, everything's being optimized to work more in the business, to everything's going back into the business. They can't see that that perfect day today may not be their perfect day in five years. So they're not creating additional flexibility and optionality to be able to adapt and to change what that perfect day looks like for them. I think that's, I think that's the disconnect in my opinion. Yeah. And I, and I sit, you know, sitting here listening to you both uh, say these things, I think you're saying the same thing truly, mm -hmm. which is that your goal should be the flexibility to make different life choices while putting enough time, effort, and energy into the life choice you've made to get there, you know? And so it, can I stay, can I stay healthy? Can I have enough command over my time? And you know, the trap I fell into as a young entrepreneur in my twenties was pursuing wealth to the detriment of anything else, you know? And to your point, Justin, I was very lucky in that I did start diversifying very early and taking about 25% of the money I made and putting it into, into well, it was 100% into stocks at the mm -hmm. time. I also thought I could pick stocks at the time, which is another- Do you want to tell us how badly that went? Or, because I could tell by it your went, eyes. It went, it went so well. It went so <laughs> well. So, <laughs> so I started it with 2006, we recognized the e-commerce trend because we were sitting in it with, again, faster. We start to mm -hmm. understand the power of that. And I start to see these Amazon boxes showing up at our, our apartment in Coolidge Corner in Boston going, wow, that's going to be a thing. You know, and my friends start, but I literally had the first Apple laptop. I had the first iPhone. I had the, I had that, remember that iPad, iPod Nano? Mm -hmm. Right. I had one of those and I was just like, oh, this is the moon, you know? And so it, I remember I got my Gmail account cause you had to be invited. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I was sitting at the beginning of all this. So I bought Amazon and Apple and Google and I, yeah, I went to the moon. It's why I'm, yeah, so it, why it worked I'm out well for you. Today. So it I might cut out. this out. It worked out great. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I'd like to tell people, well, what you're trying to say is, Hey, don't pick individual stocks. I couldn't be more aligned with you. Okay, and gotcha. I I don't today. So as a matter of fact, I converted from individual equities to an indexing strategy about a year and a half ago. And actually, you know, what's funny is it wasn't about financial performance, although most people don't beat the stock market, and that's true. Correct. Right. It was actually about time. I was sick of trying to keep up. 
I was like, yeah. you know how much of my time I'm spending reading 10 Qs and giving a shit about quarterly results that I just don't want to care about anymore? You know, and you understand the creative destruction of a capitalist economy and you're able to look and say, you know what, you're, you might have been the winner for 20 years. Let me get while the getting's good because you're not going to be the winner for the next 20 or it's less and less and less likely. And I don't want to spend any time making sure. So I'm just going to go to a massively diversified portfolio. Most people shouldn't do what I did. Yeah, you most know, hedge uh, funds, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but most hedge funds who go to school for this are some of the best of the best at, in, at analyzing individual stocks and companies. Most of them over a long period of time do not outperform benchmarks such as the S&P 500 or whatever they're comparing their their portfolio to. So the idea that most people can outperform the market by stock picking is comical for advisors because we know you can like to your point you can some people will but for the most part you won't it's kind of like everyone thinks they're a better than average driver but we know like you can't everyone can't be better than average right <laughs> that's not how average works like some of us are really bad drivers and uh, you know so <laughs> it's kind of like that everyone thinks they can beat the averages but they can't so I'm glad that you that you switched over to diversified indexing and that we didn't have to cut out that part of the podcast. <laughs> the, the face you made at first, I was like, oh, it sounds like this went horribly. Let's dive into this. And then you're like, oh, Amazon, Apple, et cetera. And I was like, oh, this isn't going where I thought it was going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This was this was getting in early on an exuberance train and frankly getting off that train a little late. But you know. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Well, I think this was an awesome conversation on the six rules of wealth. You guys also have rules on health and time, and you also have an assessment. So anyone listening can go take this assessment, right? So tell them a little bit more about where to go to get that. And like, why should they take the assessment? What's it going to help them with? Yeah. So it's, we call it the HWT score, HWT for health, wealth, and time. Folks can get it at optimalagency.co slash HWT. It's a free questionnaire. I think it's 60 ish questions. Uh, we'll, but it's it'll quick. Spit back. Yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Five minutes, yeah. 10 minutes, depending on how long you stare at the question and it'll spit back a score. It'll give you an assessment. It'll give you a sense of where you are today on the way toward a agency. It'll give you a sense of your health score, your wealth score, and your time score. It'll give you a sense of, well, just by looking at the numbers, you'll, you'll have a sense of where you're strong and where you're weak. And then we do our best to give you some strategies, some tools, some tips based on those strengths and those weaknesses to, to bring the bottom up and to make sure everything stays in balance. Yeah, a really cool questionnaire. I took it when we first connected. You told me about the project. Shockingly, I, I, my highest score was on the wealth side. Also, I kind of know how to answer those, to be honest with you. But the health and time, you know, so it's a it's a really cool questionnaire. I thought some of the questions were really unique and, and thought provoking. And so highly recommend anyone listening, go check it out. Go see if you're as optimal as you think you are in, you know, health, wealth and time. And, and you know, I think they'll really enjoy it. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Cool. So they can find you at optimalagency.co. Patrick, you are on Instagram. What's your handle on there? P.S. Cummings. P.S. Cummings. John, anywhere on social media they can find you? <clears throat> Don't bother. But if you'd like, <laughs> but if you'd like, that's one of my rules of time and health. But if you would like to, to connect, I'd love to hear from you over at optimalagency.co. Awesome. I appreciate you guys coming on. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Justin. Hey coaches, did you enjoy this episode? 
If so, then you'll definitely enjoy my weekly newsletter, The Wealthy Weekend. Every Friday afternoon, I share actionable tips and stories on how to be a wealthy coach that allows you to get 1% better even on the weekends. Check out the show notes to sign up or hit the link in my Instagram bio at Justin Green FP. All right, coaches, until next time, be wealthy.